What is the American dream? With so much talk about building walls, name-calling and animosity towards our neighbours, can we overcome our differences and actually learn to dream again? After years of epic dinner parties, long lunches and boozy brunches, we bring you Shaken and Stirred. Or rather, we are Shaken and Stirred. Tom, I'm very impressed because you normally can't count past five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. We're incredibly talented here and shaken and stirred. Round of applause for us all. I can say this. Univision. That's for the commercial. And there, there you, you go. go. That's plug. all I That's needed, people. Plug. Well, welcome to Shaken and Stirred. I am Nigel Barker, your host, and I'm here with my co-host, Tom Astor. Our guest today was born in Texas and grew up in the poorest county in the U.S. called Colonia, and also in El Coyote in Mexico. He's one of six kids, and despite a very difficult life, he worked his way to a job at Ralph Lauren in Creative Services, actually becoming the lead concept designer, and now has his own design label, Arturo based in Brooklyn, New York City. Welcome, Arturo Castaneda. Thank you. Thank you. Real pleasure to have you here. Pleasure to be here as well, Nigel. What an extraordinary kind of life. I've read your bio. I've seen your TED Talk. You are an an incredibly impressive person, and you're very humble too. At least that's the way you come across. Is that just a PR stand? Or is that you? you Tell me about you. No, what you see is what you get, you know, in front and you know, behind the scenes and, you know, I just, I grew up in a very humble home and uh, raised by a warrior mom who just taught us to remain humble and kind. And she valued all those things versus the monetary things, you know, materialistic. I mean, I mean it's not easy to come from sort of, if you like nothing. Uh, when I say nothing, I don't mean from a family of nothing, but but from no wealth and from you know little opportunity, and you rarely see. I mean, it is in fact, of course, the American dream in many respects. At least that's the one that we're all led to believe is the American dream, mm-hmm. that you come from zero and somehow you can have it all. I mean, that's what people sort of feed into this. In many ways, even my own reason why I came to America is because I thought if I could make it here, I can make it anywhere, mm-hmm. kind of thing. And but you've sort of done that, and and you must be a sort of shining star within your community. Uh, of Colonia, what yeah. happens when you go back, and what is it like there now? So um, things have changed. So where I grew up, it's called a Colonia, and Colonias are pretty di- big communities all over the Hidalgo County in the U.S. So mm-hmm. it's like border slums uh, right along the border. And the name of the Colonia that I'm from was Heidelberg. So it's a German name. Hey, so which is a weird thing. Why is it a which, German name? Because I think the owners of that of that farmland were Germans, and um, they named it Heidelberg. You know, it's just yeah. kind of, yeah. Uh, Germans came to a lot of German. We you know we came over uh, German names. You know Waldorf, Heidelberg. That's why you know it's, yeah. it's very interesting. I, I had no idea. Yeah. So you know, there growing up there was was really rough. You know, and going now I do go back. I go back, and it's it still looks the same. Except we have paved roads now and running water. Um, we have an indoor shower. And, you know, prior, when I first started well, growing up there, we didn't have an indoor shower. We had an outhouse as a bathroom and a water hose as a shower. And so going back now, it's, I think I love the people that are there because I'm still Arturo 
to them, you know, or Arturito. You know, nothing's really changed other than they're really proud of where, where you know, how far I've come. And I think I, I remain humble, and, but, you know, in Spanish we say, orgullosamente humilde. So it's like proudly humble because, you know, I represent um, the people that I, that I grew up with. That humility is very important. However, when you looked at the tequila that we were pouring you, you weren't quite so humble. You immediately mm-hmm. said it was Banco Tom. What are we drinking right now? <laughs> we're drinking a we Paloma. Need a drink. We're drinking a tequila. I think I've been led to believe this is the most popular cocktail. It's called the Paloma. Tequila-based cocktail in yeah. Mexico. No, yeah. The Paloma. called the Paloma. Paloma, yeah. After a f- Mexican folk song, yes. 1860s, which yeah. was the dub. And um, it's grapefruit. It's a tequila and grapefruit. Nothing more. Nothing more, nothing less. Yeah. But, you're, but you're not impressed by, by Blanco tequila. Why uh, is that? What is that? If Mexicans don't like Blanco tequila? No, no, no. no. Blanco you could be humble and have taste. You know, so so Blanco tequila is, um, I would have to say, it's like well, you know, like well drink. You know, it, it's, it's used for margaritas. It's used to mix drinks. But there's reposado and añejo. And those are for sipping. And usually the lime, um, we don't use lime. The lime is like the American thing. It's supposed to be an orange wedge. When an you drink. orange wedge? Actually, when, and this one's supposed to have a grapefruit wedge. But or I, grapefruit I, yeah. or orange, and it's never lime. Lime is kind of commercial here in the U.S. So if you're really going to have a, a great tequila drink, it's tequila, maybe one rock, and an orange or grapefruit. And what is your go-to tequila? Mine? Yes. I'd have to say Casa Dragones. It's oh, a, when, I love that one too. That's owned by Berta, this amazing woman. It's like one of the only women-owned tequilas out there. It's, a, it's like a luxury tequila. It's super expensive, but when you have it, it's, it's so good. And is tequila, I mean, you know, we just broke a whole bunch of myths about the American drinking tequila and how we get it all wrong. And, you know, and you're absolutely right. I mean, this happens with drinks all over the world. When we bring them to other countries, they sort of get reinvented. Yeah. But tequila has had, as we all know, this huge resurgence around the world. It's now one of the most popular drinks everywhere. And, you know, I remember growing up as a kid, it was considered to be sort of, really a sort of a horrible drink that would get you sick and would get yeah. you, you know, you would probably have the worst hangover in the, you, you can imagine, and that was cheap. You know, now it's expensive. You know, has that really affected the economy? Has tequila affected the economy in Mexico in a very large way? Yeah, well, I would say not as much as in the U.S. I think the benefit comes to the U.S. It's still sold at probably the same rate. And the interesting thing is... Well, that's interesting in itself, first of all. Why, well, yeah. why once again, uh, is, the, is America succeeding, do you think? Or winning the, the, this sort of, you know, winning in the tequila world when Mexico is the one producing it and shipping it? You know, it's just the nature of it. I think you know, America is a powerhouse. Anywhere they go, any country they go, they kind of can take over the industry. I don't think the workers are being paid more than they were maybe five years ago, ten years ago, before this whole tequila um, craze started happening. So nothing's really changed. I think now social media marketing. That has made it more global, more acceptable, and then like Casa, Casa is it, Amigos. Is it being produced still in Mexico? Yeah, it can only be produced. It's like okay. champagne. Okay, right. Tequila, so tequila can only be produced right. in tequila. In tequila, okay, yeah. absolutely. That's interesting. So that is, when you go to tequila, and then I've never been there, mm-hmm. and I've been to Mexico many times, is it a place to go to? Is it a cool place? Yeah, it's like, um, it's like going to champagne, but on steroids. It's just really amazing experience. You can go there, spend a week. Uh, or a few days. I, I would recommend. And they're shipping all the blanco out. And they're, they're just <laughs> sending the blanco to America. They're like, you know what? We, we, we don't want this stuff. 
No, and there, there's so there's so much to tequila, and I think I know a little bit about it. I wouldn't say I'm a, know too much, but I know some because the dream is to eventually launch my own. Um, this was like in my journals from growing up, and now it seems like everyone's doing it. So we'll see what happens. Well, George Clooney's doing. George Clooney's that. Absolutely, George Clooney's in on the act. I got friends of mine who are in on the act. I got a buddy of mine just created a, a tequila called Illegal, um, mm. and um, you know, th 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 there's a plethora of them. You can go to sort of tequila bars, and there's as far as you can see, there's tequila everywhere. It's one of my go-to drinks. Yeah. I'm a resposado uh, drinker normally, yeah. um, and uh, I do. I love an anejo as well, but. I, 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 th I like the look of it when you're going to put ice in it. And you're going to put, a, you know, I don't know, ginger ale or something to see it white because um, it just looks pretty that way. Yeah, it, look, it looks nice. You know. Yeah. Okay, on to you though. Your life, you, I, I, you know, we talked about the family you came from. It was poor um, existence in a very poor, the poorest county in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, now, right now, I, do you feel that you're living the dream? Yeah, no, for sure. I think I'm. Um... Well, you know, people say the American dream or chasing the dream or living the dream. I think I think I began to live my dream when I was 11 years old, when this all began for me. When I made the decision that that someday I'd be... Well, I didn't have the lingo then. I didn't know what fashion or designer or anything, any of those terms. I think I read my first GQ when I got here to New York. I couldn't afford one. I, You know, I, I never looked at one. But it just seemed like... But you don't need to know. You don't need to look at it to, to know style. I mean, I think style is one of those sort of it's, it's someone either has it or they don't. I mean, you see little children oh, yeah. having style, just the way that they walk, or the way that they hang their T-shirt, or the way they put their handkerchief in their pocket, or you know the way they tie their shoelaces, mm -hmm. the way they cut their hair. That you know, it's not for everyone. Some people have zero style, and I know models who are you know fashion models completely can't dress themselves unless someone does it for them. Right, but there are people out there who are incredibly cool and stylish, you know, who are very impressive, like my friend Tom Astor, for, for example, sure, a style maven. Yeah, thanks. He's worn the same sweater for about twenty-five years, and you know, and it's still it's still, still in style. It definitely works. You know, I would take that hair off the front of it, but other than that, but maybe that's a fashion statement. You know, it's just not looking after me properly. It was so so last season that hair. Thanks. But, just didn't need to look after me. So living the dream, you think you're living the dream, but what is this dream? I mean, you talked about being a young kid. What did you know about that at that point? I mean, you said you don't know about fashion. You weren't sure where you were going, but nonetheless, there was drive in you. Yeah. Where does that come from? When you come from so, such a poor existence, I understand you want to get out of it, but there are people in situations like that all around the world. They don't get to be where you are today. No. Uh, well, it, I think 11, around 11 or 12 years old is when this, moment, this thing happened. Um, so my my father had become my neighbor because he had an affair with my mom's best friend and, and moved across the street from us. Well, talk about that for a second. So, it, what do you mean he moved across the street? So my father uh, divorced us, left us when I was about 11 or 12, and uh, he was having an affair with my mom's best friend. And oh. we didn't know that. And a couple months go by, and then he ends up mowing the lawn across the street, and that's how we knew him. He didn't speak to us for about 27 years. Um, even though he was our neighbor, him? yeah, it, we would see him there. And would you go up to him and say, "Hey, Dad"? I went. I went to the house once um, and knocked on the door. And uh, his wife then said, um, "You know, you're not welcome here. Um, you don't have a dad. You know, just letting you know." That's. What and what did he do? Nothing. Nothing. He, you know, 
Could you not have left yourself then? Did you? I mean, it must have been like a torture to to live opposite him. Yeah, and we we couldn't. I mean, we were so poor; there was nowhere to go. And he, you know, looking back, he should have gone somewhere else. You know, but he didn't. He chose to live there, and and that's that's how we. Do you we, have a relationship with your father today? Today, I do. I, today, I do. You know, I was and able. You've forgiven him, or yeah, I went through the process of forgiveness and what all that means. And uh, today, we do have a friendship. Um, it's not. Not as close as my mother and I, but you know, I I was able to forgive him and and set myself free um, from from that, you know, that. And how did you do life. that? How did how did you do that? How did you set yourself free from that? I think it's understanding that you yourself will eventually need forgiveness for things that you've done wrong, and you want that grace extended, you know, because there's there's a there's you know there's justice and there's grace, and justice says. You know, he doesn't deserve shit. But grace says that he's forgiven and he does. And I think I learned grace from my mother. And um, when he came to find me and asked me for forgiveness, um, it just was right. It was the right time. Um, you know, because the night he left um, was pretty traumatic. He he was a truck driver. And um, he showed up. He, he arrived home from a truck driving trip. And it was late at night. And my mom was already cooking for him because we could hear the rig coming in. And um, I remember sitting there at the kitchen and he walks in and my dad was everything to us. You know, hero, served in, you know, he was a, he was a, a Vietnam vet. Mm-hmm. You know, he, my dad was a man's right. man and uh, huge, six foot three, uh, big, huge mittens for hands. So he, he was just everything to us. And uh, that night he started an argument with my mom. That led to him saying, I'm done. I'm leaving. I'm not coming back. And I panicked. So I chased after my dad as he as he walked away. And I grabbed him from his shirt. I begged him, you know, Dad, don't leave. I'd be a better son. Um, don't you leave us. You blamed yourself. And yeah. Immediately, the shame started coming on. And I said, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll do better. And, and uh, he climbs up his rig, I remember, and he grabs me from my shirt. And he says, I don't want you anymore. And he pushed me out and he drove away. And I ran after him, ran after him as hard as I could. And that was the last time he ever, we ever spoke. But he grew up there, and, I, and I, I'll bring this back to say, you know, it was hard. But I remember this church donated school clothes to us one year. It was a trash bag, big trash bag. At the bottom of the trash bag was a navy polo shirt with a red pony. Hmm. I pulled that thing out, and I, I thought I'd, it was gold. So I run out the screen door. I brought, run out the backyard. My mom's hanging clothes on the clothesline and I'm swimming through the sheets. I'm like, mom, I got a polo shirt. And she's like, guess that's all. It's like, what is that? And um, we sit down and she's like, let me talk to you about the things that are important. I see you excited over, you know, a shirt. I don't even know what polo is or, and I said, no, mom, it's a sign. And she's like, what are you saying? I go, she said, I, I, I look at her and I say, you know, mom, um, and I still, and I still remember it. Um, I said, Mom, today's the last day we're poor. I said, we're no longer poor. Today's the last day we're poor. And someday, I'm going to go and work for Ralph Lauren for for this for this so company. You basically saw your dream. You put it out there. And yeah, and I spoke and, and believed it. And my mom championed me. She said, I believe you. And you're going to do that and more. Someday you'll yeah. have your own. And from that day on, that was all I needed to... And it's not like I woke up the next day and we won the lottery. 
or things changed or my dad moved from across the street and he called me and he's like, he's my dad again. Nothing changed, but inside everything that I knew was pointing toward this direction. And I didn't know how I was going to get here. I worked every job imaginable, you know, still in sewing with my mom, but construction, roofing, mechanic work, all those skill sets that I learned because I didn't go to school. And you use all those skill sets nonetheless, regardless, right? A hundred percent, because then I get hired at Ralph Lauren at Creative Services to build the windows, interiors. Everything that I had learned from back home was applied. So you found yourself a job there that you but wasn't necessarily in fashion design. No, it was in, not yet. In, in creating the windows, but you wanted to get yourself in there. And you had that aim. So what was it like when you when you started working there? What, what did that feel like, that initial, that moment? Did you feel like you, you'd made it then at that moment or you still knew that there was, there's more to do? I've got well, to get further. Well, because, okay, so when I moved to New York, I lived in my car for about six months. You lived in your car? In my car. And I used to park on North 6 and Kent in Williamsburg and on West and Noble in Greenpoint because they were warehouses. There was nothing there. There was no, nothing. So I would park there because it was quiet. Nobody would say anything. Today, I live on North 6 in Kent. And my factory, my, my workshop studio is on West and Noble, which wasn't planned. You know, it just kind of life happened that way. But the places where I used to sleep is the places where now I design and work and, and live at. Um, but when I landed the job at Ralph Lauren, that in itself... Um, was amazing. I was working for this other designer or this other company, retail company, J. Crew, and I had done the displays for them at the Paramus store and um, working for them. And um, it's such a long story, but I was working for them. It was an overnight changeover. I went and it was the first time I was leading that changeover. And I went and grabbed a coffee at a Starbucks and I was probably eight in the morning, but we worked on overnight. So I'm sitting there in the bench and I thought I had made it. It had arrived to like Absolutely. fashion and like design. And, you know, to me it was, I was reflecting on that time when I was with my mom at 11. And, and I was, as that was happening in my mind, Tim, this gentleman named Tim is coming my way. I didn't know him then, but he says, um, is your name Arturo? And I go, yeah. He says, I want to speak with you, but let me go out a coffee. Comes back, sits next to me and he says, are you okay? And and I started getting emotional. I was like, it's an interesting question from a stranger, you know. And sure. I'm like, actually, no, I just have a lot on my mind. I go, who are you? He goes, it doesn't matter. He goes, here's my business card. Um, there's a job at Ralph Lauren waiting for you. He said, you belong with us. And yeah. Wow. Can you, when can you start? Wow. That was it. He, I guess he had gone through the, passed by the store and seen it and asked. And he said, I just think this is the right thing to do. And in wow. that moment, it's like heaven sent. And that moment, it was just like I remember f this feeling that came from like head from my head down to my feet, mm -hmm. and I just started bawling there. And he started crying. I'm like, Tim, why are you crying? And he's like, This is just beautiful. He says, and, uh, and he said, When you're ready, call me. You can start. So the, you think it's wow. your? So it was obviously you know you have this incredible story. You're an incredibly hard worker. You didn't give up on your dream. But is, is this something that you, is replicatable for other people? Do you think as far synchronicity, as... Synchronicity, isn't it? Synchronicity is what they call it when you think... No, yeah, yeah. You think that it's a sort of what, a strange coincidence. But when you actually create your own coincidence, it's by keeping an open mind. No, for sure. I think there's no formula to what happened to me. There isn't. 
But I know that if you put the hard work and stay faithful and loyal and believe in, in yourself and surround yourself with people that are better than you in certain areas, you will get far. You will achieve the desires of your heart, you know. And I think that moment was definitely a divine moment for me sitting there. And uh, then the journey starts at Ralph. And Tell us about that journey. Because I, I, this, the, your story and the reason why I wanted to have you on as a guest is because when I listen to you talk and I listen to you tell your story, it, you know, it's, it's so beautiful. It's so simple and it's so sincere. And you rarely hear of this sort of true story. That, that you know, it's it's almost you know not to 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 take anything away from it, but it's so kind of perfect in a way mm. that that I I myself welled up when I listened to it and listened to you talking so calmly, so gently, so soft spoken. You are a big guy as well. You mentioned mm. how tall we are, but you are a tall man. You're six three, I think yourself. Yeah. You know, you talked about your father having being a big guy. It's obviously a part of your DNA, but you're also a sort of gentle giant. And I think that's something that's quite sweet. You would not think so. You'd think of you, you come in with your big hat, your glasses, your beard, you've got the jacket on. It's like, it could be almost intimidating, but on, you're far from it. It's a sort of like, a, there's a soft heart in there. Humility. Humility. It's, it's, a, it's a very powerful tool that you have in your arsenal. And I'm wondering whether that is something that has been one of your massive, you know, one of your most successful tools that you have in your toolkit that's got you to where you are today. Because men out there in the world I think suffer from being arrogant too often we're too mm. pig-headed we're too angry we're too um, combative we feel like we're better um, we you know and, and yet you you sort of seem to be the opposite you're a very kind of soft heart do you think that plays a part in your story and who you are no for sure I think um, you know I, I don't approach life harsh because of you know everything I've been through from all kinds of abuse growing up. My first memory as a kid is actually an abusive memory. And everything that I've... What happened to you? Um, you know, well, uh, go, growing up, there was... Um, when we would go from the U.S. to Mexico, my mom would leave us um, with family members. And uh, they... One of my family members there believed that I was uh, possessed. You know, Santeria is like a form of Catholicism and witchcraft. And in our culture there, it felt like people thought that I was literally going crazy. But because I lived... Why was that? Because I lived... I always talked about things that I was going to do as if they were real already. You know, I talked Almost about... like visions. For sure. Um, and I, I already could see my future. I could see myself working. I could see myself wearing my own clothes. I could see myself... And I think people didn't understand... You know, I, I daydream all the time, even till today. I think it's one of my strongest Sure, you're a dreamer. Tools. Yeah, completely from that age. And I think they thought I was mentally ill. So they'd take me to the witch doctor. And uh, the experiences that I had there with that lady and the people in that room were, were very damaging, um, to say the least. They were sort of doing an exorcism or some, of some sort? Yeah, kind of removing bad spirits that one of my relatives thought that I had, and my mom wasn't aware that I'd be taken there because my mom would go to work. So they would take me there and I would experience um, this rituals they would do. And when you're a little boy and they ask you to take your clothes off and they touch you in areas that as a kid you shouldn't. And I, I, you know, I look back at all those things, right? That memory, and it went on for years. And then you go and then your father does this. And then you're labeled throughout society. 
You're, you're, I remember in school they la labeled me an at-risk kid because I came from a colonia, was welfare family, had all these things, you know, all these labels. Sure. And it was difficult overcoming. But today, you know, today... And I were can, you always I, soft and gentle even throughout that? Or were you... No, did, did, I, did you develop like this after? I think I, think I developed after going through those hardships because today I have, today I can clearly say that I can live with scars and not with wounds. Mm. You know, I have physical scars on me from burn marks. I have physical scars and emotional scars, but those are scars that remind me of the victories that I've already had. So when you touch a scarf, it's sensitive. Yeah, it hurts. You're not, you don't forget, but those scars are sensitive, but you've overcome. So, Today, when I face adversity or when I come across things like under a bad boss at Ralph Lauren, it doesn't compare to the things that I've been through. And so it kind of doesn't really bother me. You know, if I was asked to do things to clean mannequins, one boss at Ralph Lauren asked me to clean about 100 bus forms with a magic eraser. And that, and, was that, and that was not and, what you were meant to be doing? No, and no, I wasn't. And, and, and the next day I was done and he goes, I want you to do it again. But so why, little, what was but, this but, about? But, but little did he know that I, had, I was a migrant worker. I worked in the fields for hours picking onions. You know, I was a picker. To so clean a that. mannequin, I'll do that all day inside. Mm -hmm. Air conditioned at Ralph Lauren, getting paid. You're kidding me. You, you know, I think he thought he was getting to me. And it was a little bit of like jealousy and he, he was a director and I was just a peon. And, but for whatever reason, I was being championed by, championed by the right people. Do you and think that's the same level of misunderstanding that, that was taking place when you were smaller and being taken off to see the witch doctor? It's the same level of understanding by someone who's got you under technically or working for them. Who's not actually trying to understand you. Who's just trying to can't control something uncontrollable about you that, that, that makes people uneasy. No, for sure. Yeah. I told, and, and you nailed it. I think he was he was uncomfortable uh, with me there, and because you know I walk into a room and you know I'm just glad to be. I came in here and I told I told my boys, man, I, I, this is so exciting. You know, I I feel like we're like the best kept secret. You know, as far as like in the industry. You know, I don't attend fashion shows. I don't I don't sit on a wall and take pictures. And you know, I'm too busy sewing or working or. Or, or crafting something beautiful with my amazing team, you know. And when I got what, when I got this call to do this, I was like, "Wow, oh, this is huge!" You know, it's just, well, it's, it's, it's our honor to have you here. And we, you know, we've been following you for some time. And actually, when we got to, you know, really hear your story and true story, I, that's not something I had any idea about. You know, I had known you for your designs and for what you're doing now, and, and the sort of waves you're making. And I work with stylists and pull clothes and. You know, and, and live in Brooklyn, and are familiar with, with with your designs. And even when I decided to bring you on the show, I talked to some of the people who I know, and they were like, "Oh yeah, I know. He's he's got a really cool place. It's you know, it's really great. Mm. His designs are great. It's a really nice guy." And you know, they just had great things to say about you. And that's not always the case. You know, and, it's, and I think it's very interesting when you talk. You ask someone about a designer or or an individual, and the first thing they do is talk about the man. Mm. Um, and that's that's how you whether you know this or not, your brand is very much led by your personality. And you, as a as a sort of gentleman, um, has really come across, and that's not an easy thing to do. I think there's a lot of you look at a lot of designers out there. Being humble is not something you describe most of them by. In fact, 
full of themselves and arrogant and removed and maybe even insecure as we <coughs> as we've heard you know you, you don't not, seem to I'm, I'm not i'm not picking up insecurity no that's what i'm saying you don't seem or insecure arrogance. at all it, or arrogant where, the, the insecurity is not there because of your your past i imagine no for sure i you know i i just yeah i, I guess there isn't i'm not insecure you know i i'm not perfect and i i guess i I understand my shortcomings and my faults, and I embrace them, and I face them, and then I can just move forward. You know, there's no one, no one needs to, if someone criticizes my work or me as an individual, I'm already beyond that. You know, I'm, I'm, I just, it's just kind of, don't, I don't really don't have time for, for that kind of conversation. You know, I, I don't in entertain it. So you were lead concept designer at Ralph Lauren. Mm -hmm. What was it like working alongside Ralph Lauren? It was the most beautiful experience ever um, to have met him and worked there. Um, what, tell me about that moment. Tell me about the moment when you actually first met Ralph Lauren. Because obviously as a, that little boy, you pulled that black shirt with a red polo out of, the, out of the black bag. You ran to your mother. You said, this is a polo shirt. You announced, you put it out into the world that you were going to work for Ralph Lauren. And then zoom through history, th zoom through time. There you are, and you're looking at Ralph Lauren. I mean, that must, that must have been, I, don't, I can't imagine even what that must have been like. Um, un unreal. I, I think I just observed for a long time, watched him, listened, wrote everything down uh, that he would say. Um, he's did, an he, did, did he notice you immediately? I mean, you were working there, you were standing there, one of his many people working for him. Did he yes. pick you out of the crowd? What did he do? Talk about so, that moment. So I was in creative services, um, and then I transferred I was moved in several to several positions and different areas because of because of the you know I was raised by amazing the greatest designer I know is my mother and the greatest the most creative person is my mom and I knew that I had a lot of skill sets they just needed to be refined I found freedom with in boundaries to be able to to design you know and there at Ralph Lauren the right boundaries were there for me to excel and really polish my skill sets and i think i was in i was in the showrooms now so i'm i feel like i'm a i hope that i come across as a voice for all minorities not just mexicans you know and so but we live in a world obviously where people do put labels on people and what have you and we're currently debating building a wall across between the u.s and mexico and you live you grew up on a by it, the wall by the wall right? or not where yeah. the wall might be. Or, yeah, where the so, wall so, might be. So what does that feel like to you now, having this discussion about a wall? Where, where do you stand? Um, there's such a... It's interesting that the only conversation being ha have now, which is... So... I mean, the only, conversation, the only conversation that we have here in America, I feel, is, is the one of Americans, what Americans think about this wall. I'm curious to know, from a Mexican standpoint, or someone who knows the Mexican community, what is the, what, how do Mexicans feel about the wall? No, I, I, we don't understand the need for the wall. Well, I don't think I there's, do there isn't, um, no one's being, there's no murderers rushing the river to cross over. There's no rapists. There's no, like, those stories that have been told by 45 are isolated incidents. You know, they, they're sure. not. But they happen you, every day, everywhere, all over the world, but, but, no matter but, what. But what bothers me most is is a conversation is is about a wall and not the people living there at that border. Mm. It's like everything is about a a wall, a material thing, which is like shocking to me because I grew up not having indoor plumbing. 
you know, and, and if you go back, if I would blindfold you both and take you to where I grew up and take your blindfolds off, you'd think you'd be in Mexico. But we actually in the United States. And we're in the U.S. And we're in the U.S. And there's all these issues. And you, mean, and you say that because it was so poor? And because, because it's, the- because there's no, no one looks down there except for when there's political issues that have to do with material things, not the people. You know, so what it, can we do to shine a light on that area? You're doing it now because I'm from there. You're doing it now. The fact that you have me here is huge for us. It's huge for everyone who has that dream. I go back to those schools and I tell the kids, I am you. I'm just like you. I, you know, I, there, you, you could do more or even bigger things that I've ever done. And you probably can do greater things. It's being that, going back and being that voice. Um, belief, and, and, and it's belief. happening now. Belief. But so okay, but to play devil's to play devil's advocate here, if there is a, an immigration issue and you're worried about people coming over the border and too many people coming over the border, whatever border it is, and quite frankly, in whatever country it is, you know, a story like yours could seem to be the one that would draw even more people over. Look at this guy; he came from absolutely nothing, and he made it. And he's sort of you know he's on the show now. He's famous. He's you know works with Ralph Lauren, and you know, it's the dream. Yeah. That is the dream. And so, you know, in many respects, some, a story like yours is the, the reason why people are scared and they think oh, we better put a wall up, otherwise everyone's going to come over. Mm-hmm. No, well, I, I think it can be done right. What is the solution then? I think it's having the right policies in place. It's not a wall. It's, it's not requiring someone who's, you know, from another country to have X amount of money in a bank. It's really understanding the individual going through an interview process where it's not, where well, let's just speak to Mexicans that are not afraid. They're, they're going to get you. If you cross the border and, you you know, there's this mindset. If you cross the border or go for an application process, you're going to be put into a camp. Or you're going to be pulled aside and arrested and sent back. And then you can never apply. It's so difficult to come in. Well, and I just say if, if it's done right, if there's, a, if there's a, some sort of – and politics ain't my thing. But I just think they're – It's incredibly unfriendly. It is very based on the fact that this country, and I'm speaking as somebody. My family now live in England, but we came here from Germany in the 17th century, and to the U.S. to the U.S. and it gave us huge opportunity, and we and we made we made the most of it, and um, succeeded here, Um, and then that's putting it mildly. Okay, mildly is fine, but the same same concept absolutely, and then went off to England, and this country was built on you know on immigration and immigrants and it's just this it's always been open you know it's it's always been open armed so you know whether the, you know in the 30s and the and the pogroms and the and the you know the open arms to the jewish persecution you know the the jews being persecuted italians the, whoever it is the irish for open, sure open arm now at the moment it's just become this the, the talk is just so wall the wall in itself is something so unbelievably kind of like Final and 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 non-negotiable and idiotic. I mean, it, it doesn't leave any space open for dialogue. It's it's unfriendly. It's pointless. You go over it, under it, whatever. And and did you see that? Did you see the the, the sketch of Donald Trump giving that speech to those university students about you know about. Don't, you know, whatever wall you ever come across and come up to, you yeah. know, go round it, go over it, go under it, but don't ever let that wall get in your way and stand in the way of your progress. And, you know, and then he's building a wall. Come on, I mean, come on. Yeah, well, he's the biggest wall there is. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but it's become so unfriendly and it's become so divisive. Like I think it has become, has become kind of unnecessarily. You know, it's 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 fueling. It is fueling the kind of resurgence in in hatred and and no, it is. And this stuff was going on back. At, I mean, everyone I mean, historians go back to Europe. Go back to the. 30s. Hadrian's Wall, never Great back Wall to, of China. Never Walls have never worked. Never go back to the thirties. No, go back to the thirties when, when this, when this, started, this kind of hatred and fueling this. And in, in Europe right now, there's a big far right, far right politicians are all becoming, becoming more and more powerful again. There's a resurgence in the far right. It's moving backwards. It's completely. It, it, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. Um, well, I mean, look. I think every time in history we see things, people go one step forward, two steps back, and there's a sort of constant dance. The question is, at the same time, people like yourself, Arturo, who are stepping forward and are making a name for, you know, immigrants, if you like, or Mexicans, or you know, people where who where we, when you see someone like the president judge an entire um, nation and label them mm-hmm. in the horrendous way that he did, um, which was obviously ridiculous and outrageous on every level, you know, someone like yourself is a shining light to say, well, actually, no, this is actually who we are and this is what we can be. No, and for th- sure. And, and you know, he's a big advocate of Made in America, Made in the U.S. I've been doing Made in the U.S., Made in America in Brooklyn here way before he was president, you know, and and my relatives were making his clothes in Mexico in the factories. So it's like, it's it it's just doesn't make any sense to me, any of it. You know, when my relatives are working, making Donald Trump clothes, in Mexico, and now we are the enemy. We are all, you know. So what's next for Arturo? I mean, you've you know, you look at you. You've gone from the, the sort of basically the slum on the wall, uh, <laughs> all the way to New York City to Brooklyn. You've got your own label, Arturo. You're really doing well. What what, what happens next now? What, what do you have a dream still further than this? No, for sure. Um, actually, I'm in the process of you know, I just finished a a deck. I put a deck together to uh, take on investors. Uh, for all this time, I've been doing uh, tailored clothing for private clients, um, so bespoke clothing, and for men and women, even kids. But now I think I'm ready. You know, it's kind of been in the works, but I feel like now it's the time uh, to put out my own ready-to-wear and possibly show Fashion Week. Um, that's what I'm working towards now. Amazing. And taking on investors and see where this thing can go. Think it, dream it. If there's anyone that can do it, Arturo, it's you. Thank you for coming on Shaken Instead. Amazing story. story. Real, Thank real you pleasure. For having me.